0: You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Will you pray with me, please? Open thou mine eyes, and I shall see. Incline my heart, and I shall desire. Order my steps, and I shall walk in the ways of thy commandments. O God, let every word that I speak today, every thought that we have in reflection, Glory to you. For you, O oh God, are the source of our strength. You are the one who saves us. So we give you thanks. Amen. Our daughter Mira is incredibly creative. Miss Jerry, is that not true? Mira loves you. Very true, she says. Now she loves. Projects, hands-on projects. She likes to make crafts. She likes to to do experiments. Uh, She likes to help with cooking and baking. Not that I do much of that myself these days, but she does love to help. She also loves to watch videos that demonstrate creativity, particularly if those are things that she can replicate at home. She's not always great at deciding the things that are appropriate to try to replicate at home. And let's just say we've experienced a serious volume of slime in the call household. By the way, incidentally, I owe her a dollar because I mentioned her in my sermon today. I always ask for permission, and she said, you can mention me, Dad, but you have to pay me a (laughs) dollar. Now, one of Mira's favorite programs to watch is the Netflix original, Nailed It. How many of you have seen Nailed It? Oh, good, at least a few people have. I got a good laugh out of Amanda over here. That's good. In this show, inexperienced bakers compete against one another to replicate a baking masterpiece. It's usually an intricately decorated theme cake. Using scratch recipes, did I mention these are inexperienced bakers? Using scratch recipes, fondant, and ample amounts of buttercream frosting, contestants attempt to create such elaborate designs as a three-dimensional mountainscape, a self-portrait, or a Disney character. If you've not seen the show, you should check that out. At least Google it to see the images. As these predictably comical creations are unveiled to the judges, the contestant calls out, nailed it, followed by hilarious laughter from judges, contestants, and viewers alike. Well, friends, following Jesus' instructions about relationships can leave us feeling like nailed it contestants. Presenting a life that's more like a grotesque imitation than an example of faithful discipleship. Over the last six weeks, we have been exploring the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus taught about anger, lust, divorce, oaths, and retaliation. Each of those topics challenged us to go beyond rules and conventional wisdom to a deeper level of wholeness and holiness in our relationships with others. If we take Jesus' words seriously, we can't help but recognize the inadequacy of our efforts to live up to those expectations. And so we long for a sign of hope, some caveat, some words of reassurance from Jesus that maybe we aren't so bad after all. But instead, he closes this part of the sermon with those comforting words that Dick shared with us this morning. Be perfect as your heavenly Father, Is perfect. I don't know about you, but perfection seems pretty far beyond my grasp. I'm more inclined to aim for fair or good or or at least not terrible. And as if the target of perfection weren't enough, Jesus hits us with one more seeming impossibility. Love your enemies. Love my enemies? Maybe you haven't been paying attention, Jesus, but this is no time for softies. It's an election year, for crying out loud. We're filled with campaign speeches filled with untruths. Mud-slinging ads are all around us. Twitter wars, it raging. Have you read the things some of those people say? Why, they're going to ruin our country. and ruin our entire society. You want me to love them? What about the people trying to move our church in the wrong direction? How are they supposed to know how distorted their view of Christian faith is if I don't set them straight? Anybody else with me on that one? And since it's nearly baseball season, don't even get me started about the Houston Astros. Friends, I think we need to assume that Jesus meant what he said. Impossible though it may seem. But first, we need to be clear about what he said. So let's start by thinking about enemies for a moment. Now, there's a difference between opponents and enemies. Opponents or adversaries can actually be very beneficial because they challenge us and refine who we are, what we do, or the ways that we think about the world. An opponent in sports is necessary for competition and to improve skill. Think of Magic Johnson and Larry Bird, Chris Evert and Martina Navratilova, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier. The greatest athletes were great largely because of those who challenged and pushed them. Now the same principle holds true in debate. Our thinking and our logic are sharper when we hone those skills with worthy adversaries, and I'm not talking about Twitter here can't have a meaningful debate in 240 characters. Some of history's greatest leaders needed the prodding of an adversary for their ideas to take shape. Take, for instance, the example of John Adams and Thomas Jefferson, staunch opponents when it came to federalism, but close friends in life. Winston Churchill could not have led Great Britain through the Second World War had it not been for the crucible of personal political opponents and the failures of his first premiership. And of course, the well-documented example of Abraham Lincoln's cabinet, filled with some of his most ardent and outspoken critics, but absolutely essential to the leadership of our nation through the Civil War. So there's a difference between opponents and enemies. Unfortunately, all too often we tend to blur the lines and treat everyone who disagrees with us as though they are our mortal enemies and we must eviscerate them every time they speak up. I grew up during the Cold War. When I first learned the commandment to love my enemies, I pictured Mikhail Gorbachev or maybe Ayatollah Khomeini. I feared their actions, the potential of what they might do, but I don't think I hated them. Or sometimes on a Saturday afternoon, I would watch some old war movie, and, and I'd wonder what, what I would do if faced with the prospect of an advancing enemy. Would I be able to shoot them? What was I, what was I supposed to do, go out and hug them? I don't what, what, I, I kind of decided that fighting for survival or a military objective didn't require hatred. Somehow loving my enemy didn't seem so hard when it wasn't somebody I knew, when the enemy was a person halfway around the world. I do wonder how much that principle still applies in my adulthood. Did I hate Osama bin Laden or Mahmoud Ahmadinejad? I certainly hated trying to say the name Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Can I honestly say that I love Kim Jong-un or Bashar al-Assad? I'm not sure. I really don't know. There's plenty of animosity and disdain, but but is that the same thing as hatred? And what does it mean to love someone who is bent on destroying human lives and taking away the people and things that I love? Reflecting on who my enemies are feels like a helpful exercise, even if it's really just masking moral ambivalence. But that won't get me off the hook. I have to act. And Jesus doesn't make a clear distinction between enemies and opponents. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if we had to love one, but we'd you know, do whatever you want to the other. Remember that the people to whom Jesus was speaking were living under Roman occupation. Their enemies were all around them. They didn't have to go looking for them. The word Jesus used is ekthros, which can be translated either as enemy enemy or opponent. And he didn't qualify whether it was a national enemy or a personal one. I'm afraid that means we can't either. That means loving Nancy Pelosi and Mitch McConnell, the guy who cut you off in traffic, the snowplow driver that pushes the neighbor's snow into your yard, and yes, even Yankees fans. And whatever Jesus intended by telling us to love them, it at least includes praying for them and for their well-being. I know that because he said so. And I'm pretty sure it means treating people we don't like the same way as we treat the people we like. Because he said that too. It's not enough to love people who like us. Everyone does that. To follow the way of Jesus requires more, that we love the way God loves. Then there's that word, perfect. Perfect. That sounds hard. We try to wriggle off the hook when it comes to perfection. I've heard some preachers go to great lengths to soft pedal it. Well, it doesn't really mean perfect. We're not supposed to be perfect, exactly. Well, I mean, nobody's perfect. Uh, Of course, we'll all be perfect one day in the kingdom of God. But in this life, well, I'm afraid that's just not going to cut it. Jesus didn't say any of those things. He said, be perfect, therefore, as your Father in heaven is perfect. Mic drop. Now the bar is high, but I think we have to assume that he meant it. So what, what does it mean? What does it mean to be perfect in the context Jesus was speaking of? So the word Jesus used was teleoi, Greek word teleoi, you might recognize that if you studied philosophy or ethics. It's the same word that, that comes that, that is used as telos, which means the end, or teleological uh, thinking, which is concerned with the ending of things. So the word perfect, the word teleoi, means perfect in the sense of what happens when something reaches its intended end. So think of it this way. This is may, maybe a little simpler. Think of perfecting a piece of artwork or a musical composition. Or if you're a scientist, think of perfecting a system or a method. Another way to think of it is to be complete, to reach its intended end. In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, to be perfect is to be complete in our relationships, to be whole and holy in the way that we relate to one another. We don't respond in anger because anger and hostility are about power and control over others. We don't lust because lust is born out of a desire to possess another person, to treat them as an object for our pleasure. We don't discard people when relationships change, especially if doing so leaves them vulnerable and without resources. We don't need oaths because the followers of Jesus are people of integrity who speak the truth and do what we say we will. We don't retaliate, but we respond with nonviolent resistance that treats everyone as equals. And that means we don't hate our enemies. We love them and pray for them because we are God's children and we follow God's example of being impartial, regardless of how other people treat us. We should respond, not react. Oh, but there's a great deal of reactivity in our society right now. From politics to church life to the workplace to daily interactions. And too often that reactivity spills over into relationships with the people we love and value the most. Something happens that makes us angry and and so we react with a scathing critique in in a conversation or maybe we post it on social media. Someone else sees that or hears that and they're offended. So they react with with an equally scathing critique, and maybe they add to it a personal insult on top of it, just to hammer the point home. So we react again, or maybe someone else sees that or hears it and comes to our defense, and pretty soon we're just reacting to each other all over the place, and the cycle just continues and continues and continues until someone breaks the cycle, or more likely we simply lose interest and wait for the next thing that sparks our outrage. If we want to be perfect, as Jesus taught, to be complete in our relationships with one another, we must shed that reactivity and treat others with mutuality and respect. We need to follow the example of a God who doesn't hold grudges but who makes the rain to fall on both the just and the unjust. And this helps me, friends, to remember to remember that I need that mercy as much as anyone else. Human beings are complicated. We are capable of forming intimate bonds that can last a lifetime and beyond, but we're also capable of inflicting profound pain and harm on one another, consciously or not. But Jesus established a higher standard for his followers. The Sermon on the Mount makes it clear that Christian relationships are not as simple as following the rules, even when those rules are religious standards see, the Bible isn't meant to be a step-by-step how-to guide that we just follow and, and everything turns out the way we intended. We have to go deeper to examine our behaviors and our motives and to, ex- to respect the personhood of those around us. I am created in God's image. I can claim that. So can you because you're created in God's image too. And so is the person who makes us angry, the person we fantasize about, the person to whom we tell falsehoods and break promises, even the person who hurts us. And because the image of God is in them too, we cannot dismiss or discard them without also damaging ourselves and the sacred connection that binds us all in mutuality. Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father, is perfect. Can we really do that? Is it even possible for us? Well, on our own? No, it isn't. There simply is not enough good in the human heart for us to be able to do that, to be perfect in our relationships. But thank God we are not on our own. With God, all things are possible. If we put Christ at the center of our relationships, our nature can be transformed to be more like His. But let me be clear, the perfection Jesus taught is different from being a perfectionist. Any other fellow perfectionists in the house this morning? See, we don't achieve perfection, we don't achieve any of this through effort or desire, no matter how hard we try. We will fail often, perhaps more often than we will succeed. But thank God for grace that transforms our feeble efforts, making it possible for us to do better and to continue on the process toward perfection, because it is a process, not an arrival. If God cuts us some slack, and thanks be to God, God does cut us some slack. Amen? If God cuts us some slack, then we ought to cut ourselves a little slack as well. Grace... Is God's gift to us. It's a gift we must accept and then live. We honor God's grace by demonstrating grace, not just to others, but to ourselves as well. Relationships are two-way streets. We are not in control nor should we be. We cannot dictate everything that happens in relationships but we can influence the shape our relationships take. That begins by recognizing our limitations, our frailness, our humanity, and then tapping into the source of true strength, the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Well friends, anger, lust, brokenness, untruth, resentment, and hate are never far from us. But with God, neither are peace wholeness, restoration, honesty, reconciliation, and love. Trust in the one who saves us from sin, the one who saves us from ourselves to make us whole and holy in our relationships. May it be
0: so. Amen.